Turn your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, where we've left off the last time we were together here on the Sunday morning. We're in chapter 13 still, been there a couple of three weeks now, and I guess we'll probably finish this chapter as well as perhaps move well into chapter 14. So there's a lot of ground to cover, and I hope that uh, each of you are able to read the Word of God with us as we continue in our study of this great book. This is a recap in verse 1 of chapter 13. We found that Paul and Barnabas were appointed by the church in Antioch of Syria to go on a missionary journey together. And they went quite a distance. They started their journey in that territory in the area of just north of Damascus today, traveled to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to a town called Seleucia, and from there they took ship to Cyprus, which is an island offshore about 75 miles. They ministered in that easternmost city of Salamis on that island, and after that they moved westward about 100 miles across the island to the western side of the island to Paphos. It was there that the governor of the Roman Um, occupation of that territory was saved. He was a consul of Rome, appointed by the Senate of Rome. Very important, significant individual. He had a son who also served as a consulate of Rome in another area. This time in the area that is known today as modern-day Turkey, in the mountainous regions of what was then known as the territory of Galatia, or uh, it was also known as Pisidia. That was the territory that Sergius Paulus was privileged to have his son also be a part of that Roman leadership that was appointed by the Senate. Great honor. I believe it was his influence that made it so that Paul and Barnabas and Barnabas's nephew, John Mark, moved from the island of Cyprus to the mainland into that area of the Mediterranean coastline, southern Turkey today. And they went from Perga, about 100 miles northeast, to another city known as Antioch, not the one in Syria, but this time Antioch in Pisidia. And it was there that they ministered to the Jews and Greeks alike, And many people were getting saved. It was an amazing ministry there that they had begun by visiting the apparently several synagogues in that city. There were many Jews in that city. They went to the synagogues primarily first, wherever they went, because it was there that they knew they would find people who knew the Word of God. And it was a good springboard for them to reach out to the Gentile population in the region because there were indeed in those synagogues several Gentiles who were known as proselytes. They were seekers of God and they were proselytes because the Jews had somewhat accepted them to allow them to worship their God but not really participate in Jewish traditions. They were known as proselytes. But they were there and in that configuration of various groups of people, the Word of God was presented. And you may remember in our study that last couple of weeks ago that Paul spoke directly to the Jews, going through their entire history from Abraham all the way until Jesus, and 
pointing out to them that Jesus had to be crucified, that he came in fulfillment of so many Old Testament scriptures which they all were aware of. And again, many Jews, many Gentiles came to faith in Antioch because of that presentation of the truth of God's word to the Jews and Gentiles who had gathered in the synagogues. But there was also opposition. And we pointed out a couple of weeks ago that it's interesting to me, it's a pattern, and I believe it's a pattern that's followed throughout the history of the church. There is a calling on the individual's life. That was the case with Paul, and it was also the case with Barnabas. God had called them to minister to the Gentiles. And then after that calling has been realized, then they were sent. They were sent by the church at Antioch in Syria. So they were called and they were sent, and they went in obedience to that calling, in obedience to God's having sent them, and immediately they find persecution, opposition. So that's the pattern. You have this calling on your life. You are sent by God to do a certain task, and you know that you're going to run into opposition from the enemy. And it's not just people opposition. They are certainly part of that, but it's behind the scenes spiritual opposition. But after that opposition, there's also the promise of reward. And again, the reward for Paul and Barnabas was that Sergius Paulus got saved. It was a wonderful thing that a Roman consulate became a follower of Jesus Christ. And it opened the door for other ministry elsewhere. And I'm convinced, again, that this is the sort of pattern that God has followed and used throughout the church age. And I believe he's using it today. I believe he's using it in the church. I believe he's using it in the realm of politics. Consider the fact that we have just been introduced to a gentleman that wants to get involved in politics in the state of Maine. I believe that he likely feels a calling to that particular ministry. And I believe he's feeling perhaps that God is sending him into that field. But I also know that if he does follow through with this, there will be opposition. And that's a proven fact. Just ask Reagan, is there any opposition to what she's doing? You bet there is. Lots of it. But stand firm in that promise that God is with you. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you. He will not let you fall. That's the promise of our God, according to the Word of God. Go forward in that calling. Be sent and be used by God and face that opposition in spite of the fact that it may be painful, in spite of the fact that it may be difficult. Because there's reward. If not here in this life, certainly in the life to come. So that's the things that we've looked at in the previous readings of this great chapter 13 of the book of Acts. They've been in Antioch for a season. And now the story continues, the missionary journey that will unfold in these following verses. It's remarkable how God continued to minister through his called ones, in various places. Now, Antioch, again, was about 100 miles northeast of the city of Perga on the Mediterranean coast of what is now Turkey. It's in a mountainous range, and it is in the territory of Galatia. Galatia was an interesting territory. It was occupied, populated by many people who were very pagan So it's a very pagan culture, not just Roman, not just Greek, but totally godlessness abounded. And he's in there using these men to proclaim his word. And I'm reminded, 
hey, we're in the same thing in this present hour. We're among heathens. That psalm that was read this morning, Psalm 2, is a very, very striking psalm. Why do the heathen rage? Oh, they're mad. They're angry. Just take a look around you. See what's happening in the Middle East. See what's happening in other places around the world. What's happening here in the United States? There are Jew haters. There are Christian haters. And they are coming together in great numbers. And I tell you very, very sincerely that we need to be on guard. Things are happening. And you may feel as though it's out of control. Believe me, it's not. God is in control. Always has been. Always will be. Turn with me then to verse 41 of chapter 13 of the book of Acts. Paul had read, and we finished with this verse last time, by the way, but I want to reread it. It's a quote from the book of Habakkuk. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. That is an accusatory statement in the Old Testament that speaks of those who would reject the truth that is being presented It's so important for us to understand that is the opposition that we all face today. That is the opposition that Paul faced in his day. Nothing has changed. And we read last time from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, because in spite of the fact that so many people had gotten saved in Antioch and met several of the other cities that we're going to be talking about today, later on in Paul's second missionary journey, he has to write to this same people group in this region of Galatia, the letter that we know of as Galatians, and it's a scathing rebuke to those who have fallen out of this grace that has been given to them and followed after another gospel, a different gospel, not the same gospel, another of a different kind. But here, Luke is recording for us, this is what the problem is. Everywhere that Paul is going to go, everywhere that he and Barnabas are going to go in this missionary journey that they are now on, they will face opposition and they will face people who have a mindset against the things of God. So verse 42 continues the story and says, So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. I don't know about any of you, but have you ever been offered to say something that you've said last week? to repeat it this week to a larger crowd? I'd like that option. I don't think it's ever happened here, but that's okay. It happened there, and I'm glad that Paul was willing to say, okay, we'll get together with you again, and we'll say the same things that we just said this week because there's more people coming, and that's exactly what happened. It says in verse 43, Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in The grace of God. That's such a wonderful thing to realize that they had been the recipients of God's grace. And you heard it this morning. We can trust in that which God has done. We can put our hope in that which God has done. For all of us, His grace is sufficient for all things. Where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. There is no reason for us to fear We're told in the Scriptures that we should have this mindset. 
We should be saying, as the psalmist did, my trust is in you. He says elsewhere, my hope is in you. And again elsewhere, he says, my strength is in you. All of these things should be our experience as well as we live for him. Turn with me, if you would, to first, or rather, Second Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see what Paul thought with regard to this issue of grace, the grace of God. How important was it to him? Chapter 6 of Second Corinthians begins to unfold Paul's opinion about this. It says in verse 1 of chapter 6, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Take note of what he says. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. With futility, vainness, emptiness. It's real. It's certain. It is abundant. It is what you and I all need. He goes on and says in verse 2, For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses. Now, by the way, Paul's now beginning to relate some of the things that he's had to endure as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take note of the fact that he personally knows how to suffer for Christ's sake. And he goes on to say in verse 5, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich as having nothing, yet possessing all things. You see, these things that he's referring to, both good and bad things happen to us as we move through this life that God has given us. And those good things are wonderful things that we'll praise the Lord for. We're so joyful, we're so pleased to have God's blessings upon us. But what about those other things that he mentions? What about the persecutions? What about the tribulations, the stripes? What about the the imprisonments, tumults and labors? He goes on in another place, and I'd like to to turn again in Second Corinthians to chapter 11, where he talks more about some of the things that have happened in his life. And by the way, when he's writing this book of Second Corinthians, it's a short time after his second missionary journey. Now, in the book of Acts, we see Paul on his way to Rome and experiences a great shipwreck experience. That's the last thing we know of in terms of Paul's tribulations that he has to deal with. But Paul, if he hadn't written what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, would have never given us the depth of strength that he had in the Lord and the patience and the endurance that was his through the Holy Spirit. We find that out in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians Where he says in verse 22, speaking of the Jews who were opposing him, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. 
Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in laborers, more abundant in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weakness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, (laughs) what other things? What more could you expect to be able to have to live through? But there are other things as well that he chooses not to mention. What comes upon me daily, which is his deep concern for all the churches. Wow. If any of those things had happened to me, you know where I would be? Hiding. God, are you sure you call me to this? What is going on? Paul never seems to ask that question. And he certainly had the right to, didn't he? But he presses on. Why? Because he had heard from God. Specifically, I am sending you to the Gentiles. And Jesus did appear to him on more than one occasion to encourage Paul. There were times when Paul did have a sense of being so overwhelmed. How can I press on? But he said, I press on to the high mark of the calling of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. He found himself to be insufficient. He said, who is sufficient for these things? But he kept on going, knowing that God had called him to that particular ministry. No matter what the cost, he suffered for Christ's sake. He tells us elsewhere, I bear in my body the marks of the suffering of Jesus Christ. I don't want to give you the impression that Paul was some great, unique individual. He was in that sense. But he was just a man like you and I. And like you women, he was just human. All of us. We're no different. None of us are. We're made of the same cloth. But do we want to be used in such a way as this? Is there a call on your life? Is God sending you? You will face persecution. Is it going to trouble you if that happens? Will you keep on going forward? Will you keep your hands to the plow and not turn to the left or the right? Will you stay firm in your faith? These are given for us as examples. He could not have done it in his own strength, my friends. He had to have been filled with the Holy Spirit every step of the way. That's critically important for us to realize. It's by the Spirit of God that we are able to do any of these things. Because God's Word says very clearly, without Him, we can do nothing. Back in the book of Acts in chapter 13, or 14, yeah, 13, verses 44 and onward, it says, On the next day, Sabbath, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the Word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. They even went so far as blaspheming God's word, 
to try to discredit, to try to disprove what Paul had been saying. Why were they doing it? Luke tells us very specifically, it was because of envy. The book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 30 says, Envy produces rottenness to the bones. And that was what was taking place in their lives. There was a bitterness in their hearts. And they couldn't let go of their tradition. They couldn't let go of their mindset. They thought that they were right and Paul was wrong. And they were never, ever even interested in looking at what the Word of God declares to prove that what he was saying is so. Like the church in Berea, that's exactly what they had done. They heard Paul and wisely they went to the Word of God to see if what Paul was saying was indeed from the Word of God. These people here in Antioch had the same options, but many of them did not choose to do so. So it tells us in verse 46 that then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the Word of God should be spoken to you first, the Jews, but since you reject it and judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. <laughs> For so the Lord has commanded us. And now he's quoting Isaiah. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. God intended for the Jews to be light to the Gentiles, to show them that God was here and making himself available to all peoples. But they rejected that concept and they thought it was just to them. So they were very clicky, were they not? They did not want to present the word of God to the Gentiles. They thought Gentiles were fodder for the fires of hell. So Paul has come along and said, okay, this is what the Word of God really says. And he explained to them, the Gentiles can come to faith. And the Jews also, in the same way, through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who was to be sent, has come. He has died for your sins so that you no longer have to be under the law. You have been set free from that bondage. You have been enabled to come by faith into the presence of God through faith in His Son. That's what grace is all about. Moses came and gave the law. Christ came and gave grace. That's the message that Paul gave to the people in Antioch. And these Jews and some of the Gentiles who were lining up with them would not accept these truths. So now in verse 48 it says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's sovereign will of God. As many as were appointed. You mean God appoints salvation? Does that mean that we have nothing to do with it? God forbid. No, it does not mean that. None of us can explain what appears to us as a paradox. That there is the sovereignty of God, there is a free will of man, and they both are mentioned in the Word of God as that which brings salvation to us. By simply choosing us, choosing Him. To follow Him, to believe Him. Jesus said, Come unto me, all that you who are laboring and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come unto me. It's an invitation to come. He's not saying, There are some of you who have been chosen, and those of you who have been chosen, you can come. That's not what he's saying. He invites all to come. But on the other hand, 
we know that God has preordained that some would be saved and others would not be. How do you reconcile these things? You and I cannot. But they're both true in the Word of God, and I stand firmly on both of those doctrines rather than taking a position on one side of the pendulum swing or the other. It's far better to stay in the center and explain it, if he will, later. I'm okay with it now. Both are true. So he goes on to talk about the fact that these things were taking place in Antioch. He says in verse 50, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women, those are Gentile women primarily, and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. Get out of town, Paul and Barnabas. You're not welcome here. And so they left. They shook off the dust from their feet against them. And they came to Iconium. That's only about 50 miles away. It's not a bad journey. They shook the dust off their feet. That was a Jewish custom. Remember, Jesus had sent his disciples out two by two. And he told them, as you go into the villages, proclaim the gospel message. And if they don't receive it, leave the village. And as you leave the village, shake off the dust from off your feet. The same principle is being applied here by Paul and Barnabas. It's a symbol of, you don't want what we have to offer, then we have not been here. And that's your problem. It says in verse 52, take note, the disciples, all the disciples, those who believed, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Filled with joy. In spite of all the persecution, filled with joy. Filled with the Holy Spirit to do more for Christ's sake. Filled with joy and filled with the Spirit. That's something I want. I hope it's all of you that would like the same wonderful blessing of being filled with His joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Grace abounds where sin abounds. All the more it abounds. And He gives grace to enable us to do that which He has called us to do. To work for Him. To stand firm in our faith and to be filled with joy in the doing of that which he calls us to do. So now they've moved on from Antioch to Iconium, still in Galatia, and he says in verse 1 of chapter 14, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. So again, a great ministry has begun in this new place there's only one, apparently, synagogue in Iconium. There were several in Antioch. So they're going further into Gentile territory. Not very many Jews there, but they were enough to have a synagogue. And it was there, again, that Paul and Barnabas go. They proclaim the word of truth. A great multitude of both Jews and Greeks believed. Wonderful fruit that is being borne by these men. But, verse 2 says... The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. I like the way the New King James Version uses the word poisoned their minds. It's also in, the, I believe, NIV. I'm not really sure what the NASB is, but the, the implication is that they injected thoughts into their minds that caused them to wonder, can these things be right? Maybe they're not. And they were being convinced against what Paul and Barnabas were telling them. 
It says in verse 3, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So the Lord was not only using them to proclaim the word of truth, He was backing that word up with signs and wonders that were following them who believed. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the Gentiles or the apostles. And when the violence attempt was made by them, both by the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers, to abuse and stone them, now it's getting really rough. They wanted to stone Paul and Barnabas in Iconium. When that began to be made when they were made aware of these things, they became aware of it, he says, and they fled to Lystra and Derby. Two more communities further southeast from Antioch, another 25 miles or so. They're cities that are very close to one another. But it's there, still in Galatia, but now in a smaller region known as Lycaonia, and they ministered there as well. See how God is pushing them out of one place and into another, and He's moving them by the Spirit of God in the direction that He wants them to go. They're following the lead of the Holy Spirit. They were preaching the gospel there as well, it says in verse 7. And then it says in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. And this man heard Paul speaking, and Paul observing him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Remarkable miracle. This is the second time that a lame man has been healed in the book of Acts. The first was by Peter, remember, entering into the temple in Jerusalem. And a lame man was given that option that Peter gave to him to stand and rise. And he took that option and leaped with joy that God had healed him. And the same thing is happening here with this man. He leaped and walked. Verse 11 says, Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices and saying in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. In that region there was a traditional story given with regard to the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes that in that region of Galatia, Zeus and Hermes made themselves in appearance of men and went among the various places where people were given an opportunity to let them into their homes to entertain them. But time after time after time, the legend goes, they were refused entrance into those homes until finally an elderly man and his wife let them in, entertain them. And the story goes that Zeus and Hermes rewarded them by building a large temple from their home and making them to be given great honor among the Galatians. That story was prevalent in that day, and I believe that that is the basis upon which this part of the story is unfolding here. Because they see a man and another man coming into town and a great miracle is taking place and now they equate these two men with Zeus and Hermes. Read on, it tells us in verse 7, and Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes. Now probably the reason for that is because Paul was a spokesman and Hermes was a spokesman for Zeus, presumably. 
So they make this connection because he was called the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, this is in Lystra, he brought oxen and garlands to the gates intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea and all the things that are in them who is beyond, or rather who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Now he's opening up a message of the gospel. But notice how different it is to these Gentiles who would not know anything about the Hebrew Scriptures that he is now presenting a God who made everything. They could relate to the Creator. They could relate to something that they could look at and see that their gods were once by them thought that all of that which we see was created by them. Now this man, who is a spokesman, identifying himself not as Hermes, but as just a man like you. And I'm reminded that Paul is saying that because that's what he was, just a man like you, just a man like me. No different. You are not to bow down to worship any man. That's so very, very clear in Scripture. Don't worship the Pope. Don't worship the Apostles. Don't worship Mary. Just human. As a matter of fact, you know in the book of Revelation... John, the apostle, was given such great revelation and an angel was speaking to him and in that great revelation that John was receiving, he fell on his knees and began to worship the angel and the angel said, no, 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 don't worship me, worship God. I'm just like one of you. So even the angels must not be worshipped. Just God, Him alone. And that's what Paul is now beginning to unfold to these Gentile, heathen men and women. In verse 17, he continues and says, Nevertheless, he, God, did not leave himself without witness. In, what, in that what he did, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with fruit and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. They were thinking still, these are gods. We're going to worship these gods. Paul and Barnabas were saying, no, 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 no. Worship God. But this is, this is the only message they got. The message that there is a creator, a God, the one and only true God. And they need to turn to Him. Things were going pretty well for them at this point. But, as in the other places where they had been, followers from Antioch. Now remember, they would have had to travel 75 plus miles to get to where Paul and Barnabas are now, from the city of Antioch. They were determined. They're not going to let anything stand between them and their understanding of God. No matter how long it takes, no matter how far we have to go, we're going to squash this effort. So they came to Iconium and then they came to Lystra. 
and having persecuted, or rather having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul. They tried to do that in Iconium, remember. They weren't successful. Now in Lystra, they did it. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, it may very well be that Paul was killed in this event. The Bible doesn't really tell us that. I personally think that it might have been so. But I'm not going to argue the point one way or the other. I do want to say this. They thought he was dead. These were Jews. They believed that it was right for them to stone to death anyone who blasphemes against God's word. They thought they were in the right. They were dead wrong. But what amazes me most about this particular passage is what follows. They left him for dead. They left him for dead. And verse 20 says, however, that's almost as good as but God, by the way. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day, he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. He went right back into Lystra. He had just been stoned by angry Jews. They thought they had finished the job. They leave, go back into town, and he gets up and says, going back in. Tell you what, friends, I don't know about you, but that takes a how, however much energy that any one of us could have even to get up. That takes a miracle for God to have done in Paul's life. There was one time in Paul's later writings that seems to allude to this particular event. We don't know for sure because Paul doesn't say, but the timing of it seems to be appropriate. Paul says in a much later time, in a different letter, talking about his own experience, he says, I know a man, 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knows. He said, such a man was caught up into the third heaven. And he saw such amazing things that he could not even begin to explain expound on. He couldn't begin to form words that could describe such things as he saw. That's Paul speaking about his own event that he had suffered, perhaps, so close to death, if not death, that he was brought into this place of glory. And he saw this wonderful vision of the heavenlies that no other man has yet been able to see. Paul will go on to say about that, that the vision was such a great thing for him that God saw to it that he should have an infirmity of the flesh that would buffet him, that would cause him to not think of himself more highly than he ought. He had prayed to God three separate times, God, take this from me. What was Jesus' response? My grace is sufficient for thee. My grace, Jesus said, it is sufficient for Paul, for me, for Tracy, for Carolyn, for Valerie, for Tom. It's sufficient for all of us. We can't use up the totality of His grace, my friends. The next day, 
he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. We're going to stop there this morning. Derby will be the end of their journey in this missionary effort. They will turn from Derby to go back through those places that they've just visited, all the way back to the city of Antioch in Syria. The entire journey will have taken them well over a year, some believe as much as two years' time, and they're going to come back to Antioch and tell them what God has done through them. Not what they have done, but what God has done. It's always what God has done if God is allowed to do it. That's what we need to remember as much as anything else. If we are called, if we have been sent, we will experience persecutions, opposition, but there will be great reward because God has done it. And if God has done it, friends, He will complete it. Whatever He begins, He will complete. That's His promise to us. That's His promise to all who believe. So if we now end this time together with the knowledge that His grace is indeed sufficient, if God be for us, who can be against us? Go forward in the power of that which He has been giving to all of us daily, the Spirit of God, in these last days, as much as trouble is all around us, as many difficulties as we may have to face, as much trouble as may come our way as we attempt to serve Him, to shine His light. Let it be known that we will not waver, that we will remain strong in our faith and courageous by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in my own strength, not in yours, but only in His.